All right, we're going to see what Jason has in store. This is first big pick. Okie doke, opening up the email that says crossfade pick. Is this how guests feel? I feel weird now. I have a suspicion of what it's going to be, but he may defy my expectations. We'll see. Can't wait to see what Matt has picked out for me. I assume that it's going to expand my musical horizons. All right. Jason's pick is... Ah, Lucy Dacus? Dacus? Lucy Dacus. Historian? Yeah, yeah. I I anticipated this much. Uh, Metallica's Master of Puppets. Um, Interesting. I've heard of the name. Not familiar. Excited to hear it. (laughs) I have a feeling this is going to be a somewhat ridiculous head-to-head based on what I pick, but I think that's fun sometimes. All right. Is this the one with uh, with the one-armed drummer? No, that is Richard Allen of Def Leppard. Well, we're off to a great start. Can't wait to dig in, and it's going to be a real fun pair with uh, with what I gave him. Welcome to Crossfade, the dueling album review show about expanding your musical horizons. I'm your host, Matt Helgeson, and today we're joined by a special guest you may be familiar with, maybe the specialist guest of all. Aw. It's Jason Daphnis. Lord almighty. How does it feel, Matt, having that roll off your tongue, the new, the new name? It, 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 it sounded good to me, honestly. It, it felt good. It felt good. I feel like we made the right choice. And uh, we also made the right choice, I think, because I've been wanting to do this for a while. I've talked to Jason about this, but I thought it'd be cool if, you know, Jason just is sort of, you know, obviously you bring a lot to the show and you've, you've done a great job discussing the albums other people chose. I was kind of thought it'd be a cool idea for you to bring an album. Um that we could talk about and kind of have, you know, you let people know about something that you're passionate about. Um, and I think, you know, it, it'll be interesting for some reason. I always had this album I picked in mind for you for some reason. I really? don't fully. Yeah. I just thought it would be interesting, I, but we'll get into that later. Um, but in any case, you know, we do these blind and much like last week, I think that, um, you know, once again, we have two artists that I think are sort of, you know, kindred spirits and, and peers. And, you know, just inextricably tied to each other, which, of course, would be Metallica and Lucy Dacus. Um, a match made in heaven. <laughs> a match. This might be the most, I think in a way, this is the most disparate pairing, even more so than Weird Al. And, and Steely, Steely Dan. Dan. Yeah, if, if this doesn't expand your musical horizons, I'm not sure really what will. <laughs> <laughs> because ultimately, like, I still feel like Steely Dan and Weird Al, are, they're kind of like from the same generation. Right, right. They're They're both really like pro- craftsmen of what they do you know what i mean i think that they would probably have a sort of mutual like you know i i, I get where they're coming from you know they both probably grew up on the same music and things like that yeah those, so. those guys could have a beer with each other right yeah yeah totally and maybe you know i did interview lars once for uh guitar hero metallic wait he what was, he was yeah dude I've, i interviewed lars ulrich whoa it was it was awesome he was so much people rip on lars he was so fun to talk to he totally Loved Guitar Hero. He loved talking about like the future of music distribution, all this stuff. It was really great. He's he's actually super charming, um, and he's really smart. I think he's kind of, I think. Well, the Napster thing will net will always dog them, but um, I, he he was actually he's an interesting guy, and he had a very weird upbringing. You know, his dad's a very like artsy guy. Was you mm-hmm. know had ties to like the jazz scene, and he he has like, like that like a reputation for being a bit of a hard ass or what? I I don't know. Well, like, I just people he's he's an asshole. You know what I mean? Uh, and he may he kind of is, I think. But he was really <laughs> fun to talk to. You know, it was just that whole thing when like they were part of that Napster suit when people were downloading music. I think that sort of, um, you know, didn't engender a lot of uh, goodwill for the band. And then when uh, some kind of monster documentary came out, you know, there's all the scenes of him like 
uh, auctioning off his um <laughs> his his art collection um you know primarily Basquiat artworks for like hundreds of thousands of dollars and like getting loaded on champagne at this auction oh, wow. house you know so kind of like a classic rock star stuff but, yeah yeah but also he's a metal dude that would collect Basquiat you know what I mean that's that's uh, <laughs> yeah that's the other side of the coin here yeah um but yeah let's we're we're gonna start as usual though with your pick which is Lucy Dacus um I initially was not familiar with her the name was familiar but then i realized i had actually heard her because she is part of a i don't know super group if you want to call it but sure. boy genius which is sort of a collaboration between i think three kind of peers in the similar scene which would be phoebe bridgers um julian baker and her i was familiar with that i, I do like phoebe bridgers um i think not this current album i haven't heard that much but the one before that i really liked and julian baker sprained ankle is really good mm-hmm. so i actually had heard her and that was that was why the name was familiar but i hadn't actually heard her um her solo stuff as i had with phoebe bridgers oh interesting and, and julian baker for some reason i don't know why yeah no that's, um, that's a not a bad place to start actually as i understand i don't i'm not as familiar with boy genius as i am with lucy dacus's stuff but i've i think i've seen most of those artists like two out of three of them live at this point and uh as i understand the ep that boy genius put out was like two songs two songs and two songs written by each of them and just performed as a group so like in there you could say that you heard some of lucy dacus's solo stuff in that like yeah. it was composed and, and put together by her just like performed by the group yeah and i didn't listen to it a ton i never liked those kind of collaboration things that much really? i just feel like it, eh, i mean sometimes they work this one worked actually pretty well but for some reason i just i was i was really into that phoebe bridgers album especially that song about ryan adams i thought mm-hmm. it was amazing <laughs> Um, motion, emotional mo- motion sickness. Um, that was really good. Um, but anyway, let's, so let's talk about how you got into Lucy Dacus and, and I guess maybe, you know, why you chose this album as your pick. Yeah. Uh, well, I got to give, uh, 100% of the credit for me being interested in Lucy Dacus, uh, as a songwriter to my friend, Josh, who, um, sent me this song, I think just kind of out of the blue, uh, sent me addictions from this album, this album, um, Lucy Dacus is historian. Uh, and it was one of the lead singles from the album back when it was released in 2018. And I believe it was right after the album had come out and he was listening to her. So uh, he shot me this, uh, tell you how long ago it was, it was through Google Hangouts, which I don't think anybody uses anymore except for video chats. But, um, and it was like in the wake, not in, like super late in the game, but in the wake of a breakup I was going through. And it was like, oh, this is, this is good, like mid-tempo, occasionally sad, occasionally very cathartic music. So that's what made me like really sink my teeth into it. And the more and more I listened to it, one of the things I love about the album is that it rewards re-listening. Um, as you start to get more familiar with the music, you can start to get more familiar with the lyrics and sort of what she's saying underneath all of this. Really, like, I don't know, it's a balance of hook-driven and just atmos- like mood-setting type music. Like, it's not too crazy in terms of instrumentation. There's some horn work in here. There's some, um, you know, percussive and string stuff that goes on. But mostly it's a pretty straightforward, like, singer-songwriter rock style. Uh, so like it didn't stretch the bounds of what I like uh, in terms of like alternative and indie music um, way too much, uh, but it was also not something I'd heard before. I really fell in love with her voice and sort of her her um, hook sensibilities. I'm kind of rambling at this point just because there's a lot that I like about her as an artist uh, and specifically yeah. this album. But um, so yeah, I've been it's been a mainstay. I'm sure that uh, bring up any like Spotify records you can find of, of my listening habits. And this is way up there in the top three or four for the last year. Yeah. So I'm mean, not to get too you know personal, but you're going through a breakup. I can totally see, you know, there's definitely that. Right. I wouldn't call it a breakup album. I don't think it's that, you know, 
single-minded. No, no, no. But, I mean, there's definitely some songs and some threads through there that I think, obviously, yeah, I mean, the, know, the, 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 could the be album, applied to that. The album opens with the phrase, the first time I tasted somebody else's spit, I, have a, I had a coughing fit, <laughs> which is, I think, <laughs> yeah, a very okay. funny line. <laughs> I actually wanted to bring that up because the album kind of wrong-footed me right there because I was just kind of like, <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't love that couplet, <laughs> and you're just coming out real... And in the vocals, it's, you know, it's a singer-songwriter album, so, like, the vocals are mixed very high. Right. And, and they're very, you know, up in the mix, because it's kind of the focus, is right? It, it's, it's, it's her songs, it's her, and she is a very good singer, but I was just like, yeah, I don't love that. I don't love that line. Um, <laughs> it's, it's so a very, I kind of, yeah. first I was like, ooh, that's, eh. But then, you know, as I, as I got past it, you know, um, I think she's, she is a good lyricist, and she has some, she has some very, I think, effective and clever lines. Um, For sure. I guess we could we could maybe get into Night Shift. There's one later, uh, a, a line later that I really liked, which is, uh, in five years, I hope the songs feel like covers, which I thought was kind of a, that was a really clever line. Mm-hmm. Um, just about, you know, obviously writing about your own life. But why don't we, let, let's get in. People can judge the line for themselves. But um, I think, uh, I think this song is cool. It's it, For a singer-songwriter album, one thing I think that's interesting is that She's very good and deliberate with arrangements and also evolving the song as it, you know, kind of goes through the second verse and the second chorus and Mm -hmm, then maybe mm -hmm. a bridge. I think that I like one of the things I did appreciate in this first song is longer as well. um, Overall, is that she doesn't just do the like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, maybe bridge, verse, chorus, chorus, chorus. You know what I mean? Like there's some there's some sort of cool things with like her structure. And also she frequently kind of brings in different elements. Like the second verse might have some different things than the first. And that's pretty consistent through the record. And one of the things I appreciated, mm-hmm. I think she has really good instincts for arrangement. And uh, so does the band. But let's let's listen to Night Shift. Um, we, let's listen to the beginning. And then I also wanted to, to um, check into it about at 3.20 as well. Sure. Let me know when you'd like to jump. First time I tasted somebody else's spit, I had a coughing fit. I could see how that might it's turn just, you off. It's, well, you know, it's like TMI, a, you know, a li- little bit, but like it's sung so honestly and with such like a pure round tone. I had a hard time getting mad at it. It wasn't the same. I'm doing fine. Trying to derail my one-track mind Regaining my self-worth in record time But I can't help but think of your other in the bed that was mine Am I masochist? Resisting urges to punch you in the teeth I like that a lot because it kind of, you know, upturned your expectations of like what she was going to say. What was the plan? Absolve your guilt and shake hands. I feel no need to forgive, but I might as well. But let me kiss your lips so I know how it felt. Coffee and leave 
sun goes down Walk for hours in the dark Feeling all hell I think that segment we just yeah. got through speaks to like what you were saying about her ability to build. Um, yeah. Like that was the chorus, right? It just sort of like happened, you know, and now we're into the next verse. Yeah. Why don't we move ahead to a little bit to 320 because she really does develop it and it almost even becomes like a second chorus, really. Mm-hmm. Um, which I thought was, was cool. And I like it when she gets a little bit, you know, not hard rock, but, you know, a little more rocking. Yeah, yeah. You've got a nine to five, so I'll take the night. I think it comes in here. <laughs> yeah, kicks after one, like, everyone yeah, kick yeah. of this new chorus. See you again if I can help it. But this is so essential to making the next section hit. In five years, I hope the songs feel like a That's a great line. really a scholar of 90s music and like the burgeoning alt rock movement but this this sings that to me like fuzzy uh low end with clear vocals yeah i mean you know like that guitar tone and that kind of like consistent you know even yola tango which we listened to you know had some elements like it's it's very not indie like 90s for sure sure that's a good comparison I think this opening track, and this is the opening track, six minutes and 30 seconds long, um, gives you a good idea of like the range of her voice, too. This section in particular that I'm talking over now. Uh, she's going really high in her falsetto to like bring out these notes. Yeah. Like, first time I heard that, I thought, that's a really cool guitar tone. <laughs> Just because of how like well she had set up her very full lower register earlier in the song. Yeah, like when she goes up here. Gotta go get it right there. Ooh. <laughs> it reminds me of of when we talked about Lydia Loveless and how like it is crazy to think that these sound engineers were able to battle with her voice to keep it, like, from just swallowing the whole room. Yeah. So, yeah, this is good. I mean, and I, I like that she, I mean, I like that they write, you know, it feels like it's a singer-songwriter, but it feels like a band. Mm-hmm. It feels like they're conscious, too, of, like, how stuff's going to go over live. Oh, you know yeah. what I mean? I think there's definitely a lot of mo- moments here when I was like, oh, I bet that goes over big live. Like, when, yeah. when that kicks in, you know what I mean? Yeah. I can just tell, like, can you that's be- a big... Can you imagine Matt standing in a group of, like, I don't know, 500 kids my age uh, listening to oh, that no. as the closer at Surly Brewing Festival <laughs> Field. Oh, uh, that's where it was. Okay, Surly. It was. Surly's getting um, a lot of, a lot of frankly, deserved bad press right now. But uh, the, like, just the vibe in the, it was like, 
evening time, sun's going down, and she's singing this song, and it's just got this rocking chorus that it closes with, and she closed with that song. Like, it is the opener of her, of her album, and she closed her set with it that night. Um, it was It is great. You're right that it is. It's all very well orchestrated to be played live, and they are all very adept. I think her touring musicians are the ones who appear on this album. I might yeah. be wrong about that. Yeah, actually, that's a good segue, <laughs> perfect segue to my next, um, the next thing I wanted to listen to, um, because she has a really good band. I usually try to not look up too much stuff about the album I'm doing just to kind of, I don't know, not get preconceptions about it. Preserve I the did purity look up, of it, yeah. I, I did look up a live performance on KEXP uh, in Seattle who do, they do amazing quality oh, yeah. in studio live stuff. And um, she has a really good band. It's in, and she they did the song, which we'll get to later, which is, I think my favorite off the album is called time fighter. Um, but uh, her, her band is great. And um, I think the bass player drummer and the guitarist are all really amazing. Um, and they just do a lot of subtle things. I mean, they're not showy, but um, like particularly on the drums, I wanted to go into Addictions, which I know was the song that you kind of fell in love with. I think mm-hmm. it's, it's a very, one of the more accessible, I could tell, you know, it makes sense that was a single. But there's just some cool little things he does on the drums in the, in the verse here that I think are really clever and, and, you know, might fly under the radar if you didn't pay attention. But like he could just be playing a straight beat here, you know what I mean? Yeah, but he's doing all those like, like rim, rim hits, shots, right? yeah. yeah, rim shots, and and that kind of like weird little stutter into like the the bass, yeah, yeah. And then she's also good. I like pre-choruses. I'm a big fan of pre-chorus, and she does a lot a lot of that. And the horns too, like the subtle things she does mm. like that are 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 great. I'll let people hear it, I guess. I've always loved how the rhythm gets a little stuttered there. Like it doesn't stick to the four, four. It just like, yeah, like it was like a halftime feel there for a yeah, second. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's the same rhythm, same meter. They're just hitting on different notes. It's great. melodies her hooks particularly are not like overly complex they're very simple they stick in like the do re mi fa sol range generally just like doing a lot with a little yeah Thank you. 
Yeah, that was great. I mean, the builds and she has good senses, a good sense of dynamics. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. She doesn't, she gen- does a lot of kind of like, you know, bring it down, build it up, bring it down, which I, I like. I think it, it, this type of music is, is probably deceptively hard to do well, you know, mm-hmm. because on the surface, you're right, it's simple and you get by, you're getting by a lot, obviously, on your personality, your vocals, your lyrics. However, it, it can tend to be really samey. Um, you know, in certain in certain contexts, and I think mm-hmm. that she does a good job of like, a she has a good band that feels like a real unit. It doesn't feel like these are just like you know session guys that are just kind of punching a check. You know, they seem right. to have a real like chemistry. I really like um her guitar player who I looked up, Jacob Blizzard. Um, <laughs> God, <who's> what? With, <laughs> yeah, that's his name. See, I feel like it's such a, like yeah he he apparently has been sort of a collaborator with her for a long time, and they went to maybe college together. I feel like he's just, he has, I feel like he should change his first name to something like Stone, like Stone Blizzard. Like, <laughs> just go for a real guitar hero thing. You know I mean? You got, you got the chops, like Stone Blizzard on guitar. Blake Blizzard on lead guitar, everybody. Yeah, no, no. Stone, Stone Blizzard. <laughs> You're give set on give this, it huh? to me. And then she could be like, give it to me, Stone, when he has a solo. <laughs> no. Um, she probably wouldn't. But uh, anyway, yeah, no, he's, he's really good. I mean, overall, the band, I think, is just, they're very very good and very musical um, in like the true sense of the word, you know, they're not Mm -hmm. showy, but they definitely inject interesting things and subtle things that are, you know, just make the tracks, I think much more dynamic than they would be otherwise. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm I'm assuming you saw them live. You probably saw that. You probably saw stone blizzard live. I I think I did. And twice I saw them once at Surly and then once at the Cedar. This is all pre COVID obviously. Um, And both times, I mean, most of the band members looked, I don't mean to generalize, but you know, they're white guys wearing flannel uh, with facial hair. So like, they're, they're about is like out of central casting for indie rock band guys. It's <laughs> like you could literally possibly get absolutely no offense to them. They make up for no, it no, with I their mean, chops, yeah. but yeah, I agree. Like, uh, so I believe I've at least seen the lead guitarist a few times now and yeah, they just, they kill it. Like they're very tight. You get the feeling that she has, um, you know, despite, she didn't produce this album herself. Uh, she's on, I think, Matador Records. And so whoever is working with them helped her put together this album. Um, but you get the feeling that she has uh, ownership and some autonomy over like how her music sounds. And it's sort of to what you were saying about um, it would be very easy to write these songs. Well, I don't want to say easy to write these songs, but having written these songs, it would be easy to like sort of hand them off to somebody who's a certified like indie pop, indie rock producer and say just, you know, make magic but it seems like and i can't attest yeah. to it, it seems like she probably had a hand you know in, in determining the overall cadence of these songs like, i think she was listed as a producer which that can mean so oh, many she. different things you know what i mean right right but p- producer is like the most flexible title ever right. i mean i'm sure that she had an engineer i will say honestly the one of my biggest uh negative things i could say about this album is i really don't like how the drums sound I really, oh, really? Like, it almost, I, f- I find the snare sound really distracting and I just feel like they're really flat and kind of clicky, but mm-hmm. I mean, that's a lot of modern records. Honestly, I just don't, I think they're just sort of like over compressed, but, sure. um, you know, it doesn't like make it a bad record. I just feel like, I feel like he's a, a good drummer and they could sound a little bigger to me. Mm. Um, she's also got a, as we talked about in other lives, she's got a m- mild to moderate case of early onset indie accent. <laughs> as we talked about in in other you know what i mean yeah so, yeah it's that weird way of pronouncing like vowels and stuff but that's again that's sort of just i think that comes with the territory that's just that's just what virginians sound like though yeah well oh she's from virginia Interesting. Uh-huh. Um, no, i i uh i concur with with all that i i find that like 
whatever cooked her up, like whatever stew she comes from, it's, I don't think I've listened to a song of hers that I didn't like, at least, you know, it, it worked, whatever, whatever recipe went into making her, she, you know, it, 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 uh, it turned out. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's listen to another song, a non-believer at about 150. Cause this is, uh, I don't know who the bass player is. I, I it's not stone blizzard unless he does double duty, <laughs> but, um, yeah, because the bass part, I think, is very cool on this. And um, I don't know, like, jump in, too, because, you know, I'm kind of naming off songs. You know, I don't know what your favorites from the album are or, uh, you know, ones that you find significant. So, you know, let me know if, if you want to cover something as well. Oh, for sure. Uh, you said you wanted to jump in an Unbeliever at 150? Yeah. All right. Here we go. Yeah, the bass is melodic and really cool there. Mm-hmm. That's kind of an interesting element that doesn't appear anywhere else in the album, which is a yeah. kind of sampled, I'm, I'm assuming some sort of religious broadcast. The song yeah. is called uh, Non-Believer, and uh, we kind of missed some context, but the, the early verses kind of make it clear it's about a friend that sort of, I guess, splits from their family uh, mm-hmm. on, on religious terms, basically. Yeah, there's, um, very handily, uh, she had an interview with Newsweek a couple years back, and literally went track by track, giving just like a little bit of context to the writing of each. Um, and actually she says that it's about, uh, leaving, leaving the church herself. Um, Mm. and that it's like an amalgam of several songs she wrote. One of which this piece says, um, was, uh, like telling her mother about it. And it doesn't say this explicitly, but it sounds, it's hard to tell what that voice is actually saying, but it sounds almost like it could be a voicemail or a call that her mom left her. Um, for it, you know? Yeah, I just assumed it was kind of like, you know, sampling a yeah, radio yeah. broadcast or TV thing. But sure. no, you, I it mean, could you could totally either. be right. I just, you know, I would never would have gotten in that headspace if I didn't read the article. Yeah, yeah. It's um, a good one. I'll make sure to link it in the show notes. Um, yeah, which it's kind of interesting. This, this album was interesting for me to listen to, um, I guess, just from my perspective, because it is such 
a young person's album. You know what I mean? It really mm-hmm. like, and, and that's not, that's not a diss. It's just an observation. You know what I mean? She's, you know, there's a lot of songs about kind of like, you know, like splitting with your family on religion or like, you know, uh, like yours and mine as, you know, sort of finding your place. And, you know, I don't know. It's just, it's interesting because, you know, years ago, I, I probably would have related to it more, you know, but sure. it, it's kind of like, you know, I don't know, like becoming an atheist feels like a you know, epiphany at a certain point in your life. And like mm-hmm. now it almost feels like just another like scary reality to me. Like, you know, <laughs> there's no one at the wheel and it's just like a cold dead universe. And like, what the fuck are you going to do? You know what I mean? And Hey, where's your, where's your nihilist noise album out? Or, uh, <laughs> no, Matt? but you know, just even like, you know, everyone else has it figured out. It's like, you know, the older I get, it's like, no one has it figured out. You know what I mean? You just right. keep muddling through this shit forever. You know what I mean? And like, not in a bad way, you know what I mean? But I'm just saying like, yeah, I thought I would feel like an adult at a certain point in my life. And you just realize it's kind of like, you know, you're just the same person. It's just weird. But yeah, I, I, but it was cool because, you know, I mean, it was, you know, it was just cool to like listen and appreciate something that wasn't made for me. You know what I mean? Or, yeah, or that yeah. wasn't really made for somebody, something, you know, somebody who's like, I have a child. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, like I have a mortgage, you know what I mean? And things like that. So I thought that was cool. And, and, and there's also just an interesting way, like, you know, she, she brings up some sort of like, you know, death imagery. Um, and I always think it's kind of, I think there's a way you sort of play with death. The idea of it is, is like in getting old when you're young, you know what I mean? Because yeah. it's sort of like, you have this sort of like romantic distance to it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, I think that that, that was something I thought about too. So, yeah, you know, sure. but it was, it was, it was an interesting album to think about because, you know, I could imagine like, you know, yeah. Like if, if I would have heard this element like 25 or something, you know what I mean? It would have been like, oh my God, you know? Right. And not that I didn't like it, but it just didn't, I can't, I can't identify with it in the same way. Yeah. I, it's like, I mean, I am older than she is. I think by two years, maybe I think she was born in 95. If we could be yeah. to be trusted. So that would make her what? 23, maybe 24 by the time that this album was released. So like those kinds of, excuse me, post-college revelations that you have are seemed to assuming that she wrote these songs around when they were recorded and that they weren't, you know, teenage hits i apologize for the background noise i've got my dog wiggling around in the background um but assuming that they weren't written decades before the album was released there's like the real energy that these things are hitting are all at once that you know there's the realization of of death of you know family members and the rumination on death of herself and social pressures and like um capitalist pressures to produce and be creative Uh, a lot of stuff that comes hitting you know i think i may be just just on the front end of that sort of zeitgeist uh so i don't know how closely i can relate to a lot of it uh but it seems like you're right it's sort of the universal message that kind of loses a little bit of its punch once you're out of a certain like once you've left that group once you're out of your 20s you kind of unfortunately you're flattened into just understanding that as a realization (laughs) of life right i'm I'm, i've got a lot to look forward to is what i'm saying it gets it gets better right (laughs) be jason be best that's what what i want (laughs) No, that's Melania Trump's thing. Oh Christ! Oh. <laughs> All right, let's get back on track. Why don't Why don't like you know? I have a few more I want to discuss, but is it like what are some of the ones we haven't talked about that are sort of important to you? And maybe we could get into that, and yeah. also like why they're important. You know, any any parts of them that you particularly like? You know, I don't think we need to go back to the song, but I was talking about the sort of um, expectation to perform and be creative uh, in the shell. Uh, we touched on it a little bit. Um, but in the chorus, we, I don't think we didn't listen oh, did to we? the show. No, no, oh, let's, let's, yeah, like play it. 
Sure, let's pull it up. I'm a ghost walking in. First, I love how it cuts through the silence after that count in. Mm. And again, how her I, voice just, it just yeah. I don't know, it sucks all of the sound up in the room. It's just very well rounded. It's not, she's not going way out of her range. It fits totally with the musical track. Yeah, I like the, I think it's synth bass too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in this passage, yeah. And you know, there's like that line in particular, you don't have to be sad to make something worth hearing. I have never been so close to my own emotions as to pull art out of them. Um, and this song makes me feel okay about that. <laughs> it, it's like, you know, I've, I've written music. I've written words uh, out of a passion or a desire to write them. But when I don't, or when I'm just performing motions, like, you know, I'm in marketing, I, I write copy in marketing, and sometimes it feels like I'm just pulling bro- blood from a stone, and why am I doing this, and, you know, what what am I contributing to the earth? And this song, to me, I mean, it's open to interpretation, I assume, but uh, to me it's saying, like, the social pressure and the, um, you know, monetary pressure to produce and to be creative and to create is... Uh, it exists, everybody feels it, and there's nothing wrong with not being that. There's nothing wrong with being, uh, you know, to, to consume more than you create, right? Like, it's not a measure of a person's worth what they put out into the world or what, you know, not everybody's going to have a, um, you know, a kind of blue or, uh, or a revolver, you know? Sometimes mm-hmm. you're just going to do things for personal satisfaction, get things where you can, and... You know, I feel like that's a, a that, not, not to wax too philosophical, but I feel like it's a a zeitgeist that attaches to my generation and the and the generation that's incoming, millennials and Gen Z, I guess. Is that all the channels and avenues and tools that have been developed to create things uh, are easily like turned against yourself when you realize that you're not using them when you're not like I'm not a YouTuber, I'm not a streamer. I love playing video games. I love playing video games with my friends. I love getting attention, but I'm not. I'm just not doing those things. And there's nobody saying like this song is saying anybody telling you that you should do those things, despite your reservations, is like they're they're part of the thing that is making you feel bad. So you don't have to listen to them. You can just be what you are. You can consume rather than create, and still like be a valid uh, person worthy of. I guess being listened to, even if you like, you don't have to be sad to make something worth hearing, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's there's a long worn artist trope that like great art is born from tragedy, and that uh, you must ex- feel pain to share your real, true emotional experiences. And I've never really bought that. And this song, I think, it's plain spoken, but I think it gives voice to that. That was a long way to say I like the song. It speaks to something, <laughs> and it's it's like it's the winner of of the album for me. Like there are catchier songs. But this song has, I think, the clearest message to me, speaking to me as like somebody who's struggled with creative output in the past and somebody who struggles with it every day. Um, and like trying to define myself by the by the definition of, of self-worth that that creates. Um, yeah. No, so. I understand. Yeah. I'm not a millennial, but I'm very lazy and uninspired, so it keeps me young. <laughs> I appreciate your... Uh, what, your outstanding contributions. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just trying to, you know... 
be part of youth culture. Um, <laughs> um, so that, but, okay. that, that's the one that I, I feel, that was my piece that I feel like I had to say about this album. So that, uh, you know, everything else sort of equally, I'll have nitpicks and pulls that I would really like to jump on, but that's, that's kind of it. Thanks for letting me have that detour. No, no. I mean, I think I, that's how I took the song, you know, mm-hmm. to mean as well. So, I mean, and, and, you know, I, I agree with you. I mean, it's tough, especially now with, with COVID. I think, you know, there's a pressure to like, you have all this time, you should be doing something, but right. it's also like with everything going on, I think people feel tired and stressed out and, you know, those aren't always very conducive actually, despite, you know, the perception that it, it breeds creativity it also kind of can make it harder because you're just tired and, you know, you don't really feel like doing anything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I think everyone's in that zone for sure. Um, I wanted to, I think my, this is my favorite song, which is, um, Time Fighter. Uh, this is a, I, I like this one a lot. This is my favorite song, especially the ending. So like, why don't we play a little bit of the beginning and then maybe go to like 310? Um, because, at 310, it kind of goes into, like, probably my favorite thing in music, which is kind of Neil Young and Crazy Horse style, like, Ooh. jamming. And, you know, I could just listen to that shit all day. So <laughs> um, let's, uh, let's, let's play the beginning just so people get a sense of, like, what the song's about and then maybe skip ahead. Sure. It's such a bluesy way to start this song. Stone's best licks, I've always said. He's really good on this song, though. though. I mean, it, oh, like, yeah. When it goes like in those way, like 13th, 15th frets riffs. And I know you're you wanted to jump to 310? Yeah, because they kind of build it up. You know, it's kind of a long, like you said, kind of bluesy, almost kind of shuffle type thing. And then at the end, it gets pretty, it's pretty rocking, which I, I really dug. If you don't mind me listening 
Are we getting into some of that jamminess you mentioned? Yeah, yeah. So you're on a Neil Young Live thing, they would just do this for like 15 minutes. Just <laughs> fucking go. You'd love all of it. Yes. That little run up on guitar is awesome. Mm. Did they jam this one out? This feels like they could. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they ran this one into the ground. Nice. And that song, of course, is about like being recognizant of your own death uh, and some very like depressing type lyrics. And it ends on the offbeat, which is, I think, a very nice metatextual touch, so to speak. Oh, like, I didn't think about that. This song uh-huh. ends very abruptly and right as you think it's going to another Neil Young jam. Yeah, I love the that one too. The heartbeat stops. The heartbeat stops, man. <laughs> um, uh, let's see what else did I want to touch on. Um, Pillar of Truth, um, another song that, you know, you correct me if I'm wrong because you read the article where she went through the meanings of the songs. I mean, I feel like it's about the death of her grand grandmother probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, about 122, I thought says some really good lyrics. Um, and then I think it's kind of it's this is also a very long song. It's very, very, very. It's probably the most like spare song at the beginning, and then it gets pretty animated at the end. But I, I liked particularly this one lyric in this section. Raised in the Age of the Milkman was a really good kind of mm-hmm. way of just conjuring up like that kind of 1950s uh, Leave It to Beaver, you know, kind of yeah, yeah. world. Instantly sets sets the stage, yeah. I'm weak looking at you A pillar of truth Turning to dust cool horns right here mm-hmm not as like melodic or jittery as they were earlier in the album but more extended nuanced I think yeah so then it kind of gets into this like a little bit more rhythmically dynamic section then I think I want to go to like like 530 then it gets it changes kind of again at the end I think sure. in a cool way you know a funny thing I noticed while I'm scrubbing through um the mo- the song gets like much more upbeat when it switches perspectives, like it goes from the U to the I. So I think that's indicating that like the perspective has changed. Like she's maybe singing through her grandmother's eyes at that time. Oh, okay. Uh, that's just I didn't, me wow, I didn't pick that up. It. No, I mean, I didn't notice that. 
Yeah, almost kind of reminds me of like Beatles-y kind of horns on this. Yeah. Movie. Like Sgt. Pepper kind of vibe. Yeah, exactly. I think you're going to appreciate the bass going underneath there, too. Yeah, no, he's a, I mean, he's a really good bass player. He's a lot of fun. I mean, I, all these guys are very good. That moment when she says, uh, soul screams out to you is like, in my estimation, probably the only time she's gotten like raw and almost screaming. You know, it's such a controlled tone throughout the whole album and throughout like most of her career. And then that one very emotional push just becomes what breaks her voice. That's, that is one perfect moment from this album for me. Yeah, no, it's a... A pillar of truth Turn into dust It's good stuff, man. Yeah. Is there anything else, any other song you wanted to touch on? I feel like we've hit quite a few. No, actually, I'm very glad that we got to, uh, to Pillar of Truth, though, because that moment is really... It's not the end of the album. Uh, Historians is, is one final track. It's almost four minutes long, but it is the uh, a very come down moment type song yeah i would say historians didn't hit me yeah that hard compared to some of the other stuff i thought it was kind of a weird closer i thought like there was several songs that could like the first song or time fighter or that song i think would have all been really good closers but you know that's sequencing is you know who knows what goes into those decisions Um, right but yeah i mean overall like i said i enjoyed it um i'm glad you like it she certainly i'm I'm curious because I feel, I mean, this is just because I, I didn't listen to any previous stuff either. Um, but I'm assuming she was probably more straight ahead kind of kind of indie folk originally and then sort of moving more in a band direction. Or is that just my perception? I think you're probably right. I think she got her start in coffee houses, um, you know, doing that general thing. Uh, she has one album, one full length album before this called No Burden. I think it was released two years before Historian. Okay. Um, and it has much more of a, poppy like it's not taking its time type thing it's it's very much in the same vibe of you know sort of soul laid bare um and hooks and atmospheric sound but uh yeah i i know that she came from that i don't know where her where her um career is going she's had i don't know if you saw on spotify but she's had a couple of songs on an ep and she covered a few songs um for an ep that she released last year oh i did i did listen to her dancing in the dark by bruce springsteen that, that one's pretty cute yeah it was good it was a good cover it was i mean that's a great song but yeah, the, it's hard know, to it's hard to screw one. that one up. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I hope she. I mean, I personally, I mean, who knows where she wants to go? But I think mm-hmm. that you know, I think the more ambitious arrangement stuff, and I feel like she has a band that can really go there with her, and a band that mm-hmm. you know, she's a solo artist, but it it feels like a band to me. Um, so I mean, I hope she kind of continues in this direction because I think I think she's really her and the band. And I'm sure they contribute to the arrangements as well, but they're they're really good at that because I mean, I think I think it shows that almost every song we kind of listen to two time marks because there was something. Mm-hmm. That happened in the second half of the song that was like distinct and unique from the first half, which I think is kind of one of the strengths of this album for me. Oh, so yeah, same I mean, here, I, same here. Yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed it, and it was, uh, you know, it was it was good to uh, good to check it out. Yeah, I would I would say let it age like a fine wine in your mind. Like you've listened to it a lot. I'm assuming at least a few times through. I need now. a break. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like to it you, so many times to, in like yeah, the last exactly. forty eight hours. Uh, not to spoil anything, but that's kind of where I'm at with Master of Puppets. But I would say let this one like it's sunk in. Let it just stew for it. let it reduce <laughs> keep, keep it in, keep it in that yeah. uh, big old dutch oven of your brain and let it reduce for a few months and then come back to it and see like you'll remember the parts you liked and probably your brain will start picking away at things that you didn't notice like ly- lyrics that hit differently or 
you know, instrumentations you didn't hear or parts that just got, you know, blown over in your mind. It seems like based on the time spans you gave me, you really did pick apart a lot of these tracks, which I'm very, very happy to have seen. But yeah. for me, like having been away from, like I did, I listened the shit out of this album and then came back to it uh, sometime later, like beginning of 2019 and just found so much more to love. It's, there's a lot yeah. buried underneath there. Yeah, I mean, it'd be nice to just like not pay attention, you know, not in the, in yeah. the bad sense, but just you know, kind of let it go. Let it go I, past you know, your one. One part thing, of the yeah. show, I think that's you know, it's it's even I. It's a lot like reviewing video games in a way. You know what I mean? I have a different enjoyment when I play when I played games to review them. But yeah. you know, you're also sort of like taking notes and you're like marking down things and like, is that good? Is that bad? You know, yeah, yeah. it's sort of like it's it's more analytical. So you know, I don't know if I always enjoyed games as much as I would have if I wasn't you know. If I was playing, if I was just playing them for fun, you know what I mean? It right, sort of right. Is, that gets, and not as much because music's not, you know, as intensive as trying to play a game, but you know, it, it does have that. And I, <laughs> as we switch gears, I just, it occurs to me that we had a pretty short run up. So we really had to crunch on this. And I was like, man, like Master of Puppets is an intense headspace to be in a lot. Yeah. Over a short period of time. <laughs> I never really thought about that for you, but, um, cause no, I, I mean, so- to me, it's just Master of Puppets and I know it, you know what I mean? So it's just kind of like, this, it is what it is, but yeah, you're going to um, toss it at me and it's going to be another, yeah. just, just something to drop <laughs> in the bucket for you. Yeah. No, but, uh, so I guess one thing, one of the reasons I, I thought of this album, cause I, I really love this album. And I think at this point they're, they're truly, I think one of the great rock bands at this point, but there's something that I just made up <laughs> called the Aerosmith effect. <laughs> and I think, I think it, it, there's sort of, so like Aerosmith is a band for me that I kind of knew like post their eighties kind of comeback and then through the nineties when they actually became, you know, even bigger than they were in the seventies. And I never really like went back and listened to like rocks and toys in the attic. And I was like, finally, when I heard those records, I mean, I knew like sweet emotion and, and walk this way from like classic rock radio and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But I was like, my God, Aerosmith was amazing back then. You know what I mean? And I think if you stay around long and long enough and you're huge enough, and you're sort of culturally ubiquitous enough. And with most, most artists, they kind of tend to decline over time. You know, I mean, just it, not always, but right. you know, frequently. You're not generally doing like your best work in like your, when you're like 50 or whatever. Right, right. Um, so I think, you know, with, I think it happened to Aerosmith. I think it happened to Metallica. And they also didn't do them any, themselves any favors, obviously, with the whole Napster thing. Uh, I, I feel like it's happened to Jay-Z to a certain degree. I mean, I think people don't oh, really? even, like know the good Jay-Z stuff, really. Um, I think, it, you know, U2, to a degree, I think is there. Rolling, I mean, Rolling Stones have kind of been there for a long time. Right. But, I mean, I think their their old material is still well enough known where their new stuff doesn't overshadow it. But yeah, there's... So I guess I was curious because I, I would just assume that you being your age kind of just saw Metallica as kind of a corny, like, classic rock band or you know kind of a punchline maybe i'm not sure if that was true i don't know, you know what you thought about metallica or you probably never thought about Metallica. no it's funny you should bring that up because like they were always kind of a monolithic like this is the genre type band you know like if i were going to listen to yeah. 60 like brit pop i was going to be listening to the beatles because they were the band for that you know yes um, they definitely and metallica yeah uh metallica for metal was specifically that i remember my like most vivid memories of my exposure to metallica were mean kids when i was before i was homeschooled i was in public school for a few grades and uh and the mean kids picking on me were always and i swear to god always wearing metallica (laughs) t-shirts i don't think any of them well maybe one of them maybe one of them was wearing like a stone cold like three uh, which which one nwo or something like yeah yeah Yeah. and like they were just all super aggro you know cops in training type kids and just that 
that always stuck with me. Not that I was like particularly afraid to approach, you know, I ended up listening to other types of metal and other artists. And, you know, I got into the metalcore scene when it came around with, you know, when it started to pervade um, a lot of the pop punk scene. But, uh, but you're right that Metallica was, I, w- I wouldn't have called them cheesy, but I think that their own popularity, their own ubiquity in the space yeah. sort of ate them alive for me where I was like, yeah. if I ever get into that, I'll listen to like three songs and that'll be it. So I never really saw it worth, it was, it was, it was ironic and I guess like counterintuitive. Yeah. That's interesting because when I grew up, you know, they were definitely seen more of as like an alternative to like bands like Motley Crue or, you know whatever those kind of corny like pop metal bands you know they were they, mm-hmm. they were an underground band you know what i mean like i was late like i didn't know them when they were super underground i was late to that party oh. I, you know i certainly wasn't of the age to like have known them when like whatever they were coming up in san francisco but they were definitely an underground thing and you know this you know thrash was definitely an underground movement and a kind of a grassroots movement mm-hmm. um but then you know they became like you know a football stadium band right for for years after the black album and they they certainly changed on the black album with enter sandman which is probably their most well-known song i mean they definitely became slower they kind of mm-hmm. became more polished and they they certainly made a conscious effort to say like we want to be a big band um so i they're a band that i think has distinct eras um and you know we talked about it a little bit before but this this album kind of i think is sort of the culmination of their early period i think it's their most kind of realized like mm-hmm. ambitious thrash album it's also the last album that cliff burton their bass player um and and really an amazing bass player by all accounts an amazing guy an amazing musician uh was they they had a, a van accident in Europe and he was killed um so after that point i don't think i think a lot of people would say they're they're not quite the same band after that and justice for all the next album is very good but it's it's mixed very weird to kind of punish Jason Newstead the new bass player by mixing out his bass yeah yeah tim to be Turner kind of told like me that i assholes I, like, for some reason i i i i had no idea that that was a thing like I, this in the same vein as you not going back to listen to Lucy Dacus's other stuff, I decided not to listen to any other Metallica. Like I contained it to this album and this album only so that I had those goggles on. But to hear that, like after the departure of one bass, well, I guess departure is a weird word, weird way to say that he, that he died. But after one bassist uh, turns into another, that they would just like shaft the new one completely. Was there a reason for that? Did they like see it as retribution? Was it a producer I- thing? You know, I know the no. I, I was reading up on it. The, the mixer, the the they brought in some mixing pro. He he tried to walk off the job because he was so upset about what they were doing to the bass. It was and the band. Yes, yes. Oh my no, god! They, they they told Fleming Rasmussen, and and that's the other thing. It's like it's the same producer that did you know, and Justice for All or uh, Master of Puppets, and they just I don't know. I think they were in mourning, and like I mean, they were notoriously like you know, they were heavy. I think chemical right. usage at that point too, probably like especially alcohol and cocaine. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to say what goes in the decisions, but yeah, they, like Newstead, like it's a weird sounding record because it, it doesn't sound like it has bass. It, it's definitely a, a, like a, a little more polished version of this and it's very ambitious in some ways, but that's cold. Um, it, that's cold. It just could, yeah. It's kind of weird because they kind of made it a worse record on purpose, <laughs> uh, which I don't really get, but it's um, like the producers thing. They were hoping that it would be a smash success, like springtime <laughs> for Hitler. Yeah. But, you know, anyway, you know, Master of Puppets, I think, is, is largely considered, even though the Black Elm is kind of like their their big seller and their, their commercial breakthrough and the kind of the most known one. I think most Metallica fans would say, like, Master of Puppets mm-hmm. is the mm-hmm. best album. Maybe Ride the Lightning, but, you know, this was, I think this was almost like out of the gates considered like a masterpiece, you know, in metal. Um, I think that it just had an, a level of ambition and, you know... Uh, I mean, it was it was super intense. It was super heavy and fast, but it also had 
I think something that distinguished them from maybe bands like Slayer, uh, you know, they, they definitely always had a very good sense of melody and song structure, even as they were, you know, very hard and very fast and very relentless mm-hmm. at a lot of points. You know, I think they, I think they always had really good songwriting instincts and, and some sort of progressive elements too. Um, so yeah, I was just, I don't know. I was just curious because like, I know you're not really like a big metal guy. I, I, I figured oh, you kind right, of just yeah. thought, thought of them as this sort of like, you know, band that plays at like us bank stadium you know what i mean and, and like <laughs> yeah so I was, I was curious what you what, what your take would be on like a young metallica you know kind of hitting their peak as artists and and kind of when they were like this really kind of take your head off like kind of uh-huh. breakneck band I'll, I'll tell you that i felt i feel excuse me i felt better about it than i thought i would when i got the assignment uh based on all of my like wanton preconceptions of the band and i think the intro was one of the things that started to excuse me the intro of the very first track battery is what oh. really started to get me on on board yeah uh, so it, it's really cool because it's totally the opposite of what you expect i yeah like, exactly I, remember I had i had sort of like heard like of metallica but i lived in a small town so it was kind of hard to get stuff you know what i mean so mm-hmm. i was like a little like i said i was sort of late you know what i mean and i was like younger than probably the original fans or whatever but I just had this idea what it was going to be, and it was going to be so heavy, and it, eventually it is. But when it when it came on, I was like, "Whoa!" It's like this this mm-hmm. neoclassical Spanish guitar kind of thing, and it's and it's really well written, and it's, it's kind of a really pretty. Um, and then all of a sudden, the <laughs> you know, the storm clouds gather, and you know, it kicks in, <laughs> and metal comes to kick some ass. I think we should just jump right yeah. into it as a scene yep. setter. This is battery. Ooh. It's not just the notes, it's the way that he like rakes his nail against the string. I feel like the song started and I was like a Spanish buccaneer uh, <laughs> headed back with my loot from the Caribbean to, to Spanish main. And then like when the drums came in, it was uh, like, I was, being bes- I was being beset by another ship. Oh no, everything's, you know, everything's going to hell. And then finally, like it goes into the chugging and I'm fighting the Kraken as well. And it's just like, I'm, I'm in over <laughs> my head now. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, I think a classic thrash metal song. It's got that yeah. kind of, like, thrash was kind of defined almost by that sort of gallop. Yeah. Like and, that and high BPM gallop. This, so this song is thrash, but the rest of the album veers in and out of thrash, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think their, like, their first album, Kill Em All, is, like, definitely, like, a thrash metal, like, you know, mm. touchstone. But, you know, like this or Damage Incorporated are very thrash, you know, disposable heroes. Okay. But um, they, they definitely, like, this was... 
they did start slowing some of the tempos and kind of varying things a little bit more and you know almost some progressive rock elements to it which we oh, yeah. probably get into definitely um but but this right now you know if you just wanted like you know punch you in the face like mosh pit stuff right here you know like yeah they pro- i'm sure they played this at every fucking concert and that, yeah, for that's like why 30 ask, years you know is because like i think that this song it's not like it's a high that the album never matched again because like i do like the rest of the album as well but i feel like I feel like the energy of that song is what I expect and want from metal a lot. This album does a really good job of easing you into the other parts and influences. It even goes into like, like you said, a very classical vibe later, some Baroque stuff and a very bluesy hard rock type. Um, but when it's just straight thrash is when I was really feeling it sing, like boiling my blood. So I wonder if there's a secret thrash metal, like if I should grow out my hair and make it to every armory show just to, just to like let, let loose a little bit sometimes. Yeah, um, dude, get because get, this, like rain, get rain and blood by Slayer, and just go. Oh man, you know, go for it. <laughs> Have you seen that? It's an internet meme, but it's like my mom named her vacuum Slayer because it's been around since 1984 and it sucked the entire time. <laughs> Ooh, wow! It's it's mean, Damn. and I don't know enough Slayer to know whether or not it's funny. But it, I, think uh, it's I would say Slayer is just the pure aggression side of it. You know what I mean? Oh, like okay. without any of the like melody, without any, you know what I mean? Like Slayer is just. I mean, much more aggressive than Metallica. You know what I mean? Mm. Well, well I, I mean, not much more, but you know. Yeah. Like, just imagine, like, all the punch you in the face stuff. So, that, if that's what you want, like, Slayer, mm. I mean, they're great. I mean, I saw them live. They were, you know, I also they know, were, they were a great band. I also know Tom Araya is kind of an objectionable person these days. So, we'll, we'll see. We'll see whether, uh, or not I, whether or not I dive in. I would um, say that thrash metal was not yeah. the most politically progressive <laughs> milieu, so to speak. Um, that, yes. that sort of leads me to. Um, one of my next questions, we'll get to more tracks because there, I think there are several really good ones on here. But um, so in looking up this, uh, you know, the research I do when we pull albums for this show is I go to, you know, Genius and Wikipedia and, you know, see what's been written about it, see what sort of discourse is done on YouTube and in podcasts about the albums. And uh, Genius reveals that most of the annotations, I don't know if you use Genius very much, Matt, but you can annotate kind of like Wikipedia um, with your best guesses or with, you know, artist information about what a track or a line means. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. And there are several that are like, you know, pretty straightforward. This is an anti-corporatist message, or this is against, you know, railing against fascistic power structures in, in organized religion, that kind of thing mm-hmm. that you might expect. And some of the lines, um, I should actually, bring, I, I don't know why I didn't bring it up, but some of them are just like, like in battery, like the verse one, lashing out the action, returning the reaction, weaker ripped and torn away, hypnotizing power, crushing all that cower, battery is here to stay. And somebody annotated and said that this song is about their fans. The power of the band surges through the fans and acts like they've yeah. been hypnotized. The power of the <laughs> totally. band smashes all that are afraid. And the last part is very true. The fans <laughs> will always be there, <laughs> which seems yeah, like a that's... little self-important. Like, and it's got like 32 upvotes. Like people are generally Metallica fans agree. And that is what got think... my brain thinking about. Go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Like do Metallica fans care much about the lyrics i don't mean that pejoratively i don't mean like are you even listening because oh, they no, sound I think stupid so, yeah. I because think so. well here's the thing i then again i turned to tim turry i think the most listening i've ever done to metallica directly was in his car when i was an intern and we'd you know drive here and there either you know after work to hang out or whatever uh and he would be playing all sorts of metal and i'm pretty sure metallica was in there so i asked him what he thought about generally metallica's lyrics and he said that as a fan since seventh grade um and I quote, for the most part, I thought of the lyrics as just cool sounding words said in a cool order. At the time, he thought it was even a bit cheesy and heavy handed. Now, well, not, yeah. not not that that's not true, but it makes me wonder, like, there are a lot of overblown annotations on Genius. There is like 
There are claims that these are very heavily and nuanced political themes going through this album, and I... Maybe I'm stupid, but I didn't pick up on much of that. Is that is it known as <laughs> well, a thing? Well, I mean, for, you know, I think fans? I think you know, Disposable Heroes is pretty clear as like sort of an anti-army song. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's pretty clear. Uh, thing that shall not be is is if I don't, you probably had to look it up, but that's that's like Lovecraft, right? No, I, I actually um, got that vibe before finding that out. Yeah, and then you know, there's there's Master Puppets is about drug abuse. You know, I mean, I, I you know. Metal's not known for subtlety, I would say. You know what I mean? But <laughs> okay, I would say that, that I'd say they question. were maybe unique within. I mean, Thrash did have political messages, I would say, you know, in comparison to other maybe forms of metal. You know what I mean? They were somewhat influenced mm-hmm. by hardcore and punk. Um, I mean, they were influenced by hardcore and punk. So, I mean, but it's, it's certainly not like, you know, Leonard Cohen or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> but it's, it's definitely. I mean, I think that they were unique in that they did try to have messages. You know what I mean? Battery is. I mean, the whole metal fans is like an army thing is like such a, a metal thing, like from the Kiss army to like you right. know, Judas Priest, like that whole like we're an, we're an army for our metal is like, you know what I mean? That's just so ingrained in metal, mm-hmm. you know, that I think all bands to a degree have songs like that. It'd be but, weird if they didn't have that song. right? Yeah. And then, you know, I should, there is a little nuance maybe to the, the religious stuff that's kind of interesting in that um, James Hetfield was raised and by all accounts, kind of abusively raised by mm. Christian scientists. Ooh. Um, so, you know, he was denied, like, you know, the, the, the hardcore Christian scientists, like, believe that, you know, you don't go to the doctor because, right. Medication you know, is. you pray. So, you know, he was, like, not ever taken to a doctor as a child if he mm. was sick. And I think that I, I don't know for sure, but I get the sense that there was probably some level of, uh, I don't know, violence or whatever in the household. Right. So. Okay. I think some of the, I think some of the anti-religious stuff, especially from Hetfield, is is very tied to his upbringing and stuff, and you know, okay. it's pretty pretty angry. There's a lot of that surfaces on the next album, Justice for All, as well. There's there's a specific song called Dyer's Eve that's pretty much about that. Okay. But um, so you know, there there is some nuance there, I would say. But you know, like how much that matters is up to the listener, I would say. You know, yeah. I mean, it's certainly more about the music and just the impact, I think, of, like, the riffs, you know? Yeah, definitely. And that's that leads me... That's a great segue. We are really good at segueing each other in, but um, Master Puppets, the title track, uh, there's a section, and I don't know how much of you looked into this, there's a section at the end of the measure, like a riff that is very hard to count. It comes in on the offbeat, and it extends by just a little bit. And there's been so much thought put into this. Let me see if I can find it in the actual track to, to give you an idea of what that sounds like. Did you hear that? That burnt, burnt, burnt. Yeah, yeah. So that's pretty signature to this track and it's like so many people have thought so long and hard about what that is um because when it's transcribed it's transcribed as and not to get too musical theory nerd with it but it's transcribed by the official like i think it's mel bay or something uh transcription book you might have been you might have had it uh as a six eight measure like Mm -hmm. six beats and the eighth note gets the beat just very quick um but that's not right, because when people play it, when people play it like that, it's not right. So people started saying maybe it's five eight. It sounds weird, and then like that's not that's not right either. That's too short, and then six eight is too long. So what do we do about this? Somebody with the magic of uh, audio editing tools in you know the late two thousands took this song into Audacity or whatever and counted out how long each beat is approximately, <laughs> and then divided that in that measure 
by how many seconds each beat takes to get to, and I quote, that's, that measure is probably in 2132 time, Matt. Wow. <laughs> Uh, they're they're, most they're like jazz musicians. They're beyond time signatures, man. They're just <laughs> they're, they're feeling it. They're like know? jazz musicians for like that literal 0.75 second uh, passage. But I just love getting that detailed with it. And I know, like in all likelihood, the band's not not counting 21 beats, uh, at 30 second notes in you know that amount of time. It's probably just and you've been there too, where you're jamming with somebody and it's just like here, this sounds weird. Copy exactly what I'm doing. Yeah, and then, totally. And then turns it into like that repeating riff in the song, which it's imagine trying to put a click track together for this track. Then if you cannot measure and beat out like how much time goes into each measure, that was that just blew my yeah, mind. Yeah, I mean, they Again, probably didn't have a click. Right. Uh, so that that made this that passage from the song stick in my head. But there are other parts of Master of Puppets, including at four minutes 30, if I can pull that up. Um. That where it starts to weave in and out of some of those other genres, not like strongly, they're not you know pulling out the symphony yet, but they are like they're sh they're they're showing I guess their chops in other genres. Like that line, that yeah. constantly moving line with the octave guitars is very like I'm not very good with my decades and and generations but it sounds very like baroque like a like mozart-esque almost yeah i mean i think they all had kind of um i mean i think like richie blackmore from deep purple used mm -hmm. a lot of classical influence in his lead playing and i think he was you know these guys all kind of grew up more in the 70s shit right so sabbath and Deep uh -huh. purple and i think blackmore is very influential in that respect but kirk hammett's actually like he's got a he's got a great sense of melody as a lead player uh yeah I there's there, there's a lot of excellent harmonizing of guitars on this too. It's it's the lead singer, and they've got a lead guitarist, right? They're both playing yeah. Guitar. So he Hetfield's basically the rhythm guitar player, and Kirk Hammett's the lead player. But they oh, okay. sometimes do like twin lead kind of, you know, like the classic like kind of seventies like harmony. You know, Iron Maiden was a big fan of the harmony lead too. Mm -hmm. You know, so they probably got some from Iron Maiden as well. How how hooty patootie is Metallica about their whole thing? Are they like? super protective of their image and of their general like uh like do they get angry when they get bad reviews you know what i mean like do they have a war with people who are who don't appreciate their music are they one of those types of bands um i don't really i've never got the sense that they cared that much about you know reviews because okay. I, I just don't i think that i mean i think back then too they they probably just never I mean, they, they probably have gotten good reviews from, say, like a Rolling Stone, which would sort of represent to them like the, you know, kind of uh, establishment or whatever. But, you know, I think in those days, I think metal was not taken seriously, probably. Sure. So they, I, I doubt that they, I think the bands that they considered great, you know, aside from like the Led Zeppelins and, you know, Black Sabbath and Deep Purple. But, you know, they liked a lot of weird, like new, there was a thing called the new wave of British heavy metal in the, in the late 70s that was kind of like Iron Maiden was the most successful, Def Leppard, but bands like Diamond Head. Praying Mantis, um, that he was kind of like more ambitious, like mm -hmm. Saxon. Um, I think that a lot of the bands that they consider like great, like never really got any press and, and certainly okay. weren't taken seriously by the media. So I, I don't know if they really, they probably cared about like underground metal press to a certain degree and like, you know, that type of scene. But I, I doubt that they like were being, really like, like being true metal, not necessarily being liked by everyone. And, you know, I feel like when I look at pictures of them, it's hard for me to not find 
pictures of them wearing just like all black tight t-shirts and sleeveless yeah. tees and stuff like they're big, pretty, big white sneakers and yeah, like yeah, tight black jeans yeah they're pretty consistent about their image which is one the, thing but like i don't know i think of the only and you might not even be able to call it metal so much but like um like coheed and cambria i know that their status as a metal band is is up in the air because they're prog pop rock uh but like they have a whole they don't have costumes or anything they're pretty plain dressed when they're on stage but they have that whole uh, mythos that they built up around themselves so yeah and you know when i think of that i'm like that's not why i listen to this i don't even know the uh might be sacrilege but i don't even know the the whole story behind what they've written i just know that it's like really good like light prog um mm-hmm. and that's why i love listening to it so i was i was curious if like bands that are harder into the metal thing tended yeah. that way or if it's just um case by case. I, I think that probably the thing that's probably hard to perceive now because they are so huge and they've been so huge for so long is that thrash was, I mean, you know, I've watched some documentaries and stuff about the early days and things like that. And it was extremely underground. I mean, it was, it was Uh people mailing each other cassettes to like weird dudes in Europe. And like, you know, their first album came out of music for nations, which is a weird, like Danish label or something. I mean, it was very, very, very underground stuff. And like, it wasn't like they had trouble, I think, you know, finding places to play because they didn't really, you know, they didn't really, you know, you know, you've seen like even the caricatures or like Motley Crue, like, you know, is that kind of like poodle hair? Yeah. Yeah. You know, spandex and, and like, and these guys were just wearing like jeans and t-shirts and like, mm-hmm. you know, like big, big, like Nike sneakers and stuff. You know what I mean? So that okay. the whole thrash thing was very underground. They all became a lot of them, like maybe, you know, like Megadeth, Metallica, Anthrax, Slayer, and some of those came, became very big bands. But I think at first they probably didn't. I doubt they had any ambition or idea that they would ever get much past playing, like say the size of a first Avenue type main room. Oh, wow. Well, jokes on them. Um, yeah. your description of the early days of like thrash and like harder metal makes me think it's a corollary. You will definitely appreciate Matt, but it makes me think of how anime spread around the world, uh, cassettes and videotapes and just like file sharing in the early days of the internet uh, yeah. to get things west to get things in the into the western world um you know it, it all happens god thank god it happens or else you know we might have been limited in the amount of anime we can, we might be stuck i know there's Man, no limit to my, there's imagine. no limit to my appetite for anime <laughs> absolutely none famous uh famous yeah. fan of anime matt Haggerson. um but we should get on with the music. Yeah, uh, let's, let's listen some The more. next track that I had in mind um, from the intro is The Thing That Should Not Be. It's the one that you mentioned is Lovecraft-inspired. Uh, again, a man with um, some problematic connotations, but uh, yeah, this overall, one, things influenced by him, I'm not perturbed by. Yeah, this one was very, like, I remember kind of unsettling to me, because I don't even know if I really knew what Lovecraft was. I'm, I'm positive I didn't know what Lovecraft was. I mean, I, I knew the name, but it was, mm-hmm. I just found this, like, these kind of like weird, I think they're like probably modal scale riffs or something. Like, I don't know. I've always, I remember thinking this was sort of very unsettling to me at mm-hmm. the time. Right. You know what this makes me think of is like, I'm walking down the street at night in a noir and there's like rain soaked back alleys that my uh, shoes are clapping against. Yeah, I totally. A lot of great riffs on this album. Yeah, it's 
that's the other thing is like it's very prototypical i i grew up um playing with some folks who were much much more into metal than i was i was in a, a couple of bands with some of them so i would hear riffs that are much more complex than these and much more like uh, i guess uh i guess just just way more uh thought seems to have been put into them than than these fairly simple ones but i realized that's just because this was a form that they were creating as they're going you know yeah no a lot of like chromatic scale stuff Mm mm-hmm So you get a general idea of where this yeah, song is going with its you know, story. Listening to this too, the other thing that I, I kind of liked hearing this again it had been a while is like, it's good to hear Hetfield before some of his like vocal mannerisms kind of become annoying ticks. Oh really? Well, like just now he's kind of known for the yeah kind of mm-hmm. thing, and like you can hear the beginnings of it here, but it's it's like his voice is a little higher register than it, it, it grew into, and uh, he just sounds younger. But. Um, yeah, it was good to hear that. I love that echo effect, too. It's good production on this album. Um, later in this song is a section that I wanted to get to. It is at about 3 minutes 50 seconds, uh, where, and I wrote down that they're harmonizing guitars, and that's one of my favorite things in any kind of music ever, is when two guitars harmonize with each other really well, and really, like, tightly in time. So, if you'll indulge me. I guess it really was just that tiny little passage. No, that's good though. But it's like when I'm listening to music and that happens, that's when my ears perk up, and I start to think, "Okay, I'm into this." Yeah, I'm a big fan. Hammonds is cool. Like he's got also like a real bluesy aspect for that era. He uses yeah, the yeah. wah pedal a lot. He's got almost some like kind of Hendrix stuff that was oh, really wow. not in, not you know not fashionable. I don't think at that time. Like sometimes he gets a little bluesier than I think most of those type of bands ever did. You mean um, not fashionable just in the metal space? Yeah, okay. at that time, especially in that genre, right. especially it was very kind of like minor, you know, minor scale and like mm-hmm. whatever fucking Dorian mode or whatever. <laughs> I I never learned those things. You can't, Ionian, can't look whatever. To me. Dor- I, yeah, Phrygian, Phrygian. <laughs> that's a mode right there. Fr- Phrygian modes. Um, yeah, you had a section of Welcome Home Sanitarium that you wanted to play, right? Yeah, I just like how it builds at the end. Um, this is another kind of one of the more slow burn songs. But at, at the end, it's kind of like, I mean, this is basically, you know, this is kind of more, they were big, like all these guys too in Thrash were like huge Stephen King fans. You know what I mean? So like they kind of have these little like songs that are sort of like little mini, I guess, horror movies kind of, you know what oh, I mean? Really? In song form, I think. I think they were all like, they were super all into like Stephen King. So, you know, this is kind of like a guy that's like going crazy or whatever. You know, every time that I hear about Stephen King. I realize Stephen King is very, very old. <laughs> like these kids who were in their twenties at the time were influenced by him in yeah, 1986. Yeah. Like, wow. I love this riff too. Mm-hmm. Sanitarium. 
They love those little pickup things like that. I love that. Yeah, yeah. They're playing in standard tuning, right? Like, there's no drop here? Boy, I don't know. I mean, I think drop drop D was fairly common. Mm. I know the only one I know how to play is um Ender Sandman's definitely drop D. You know, another thing too, I'm pretty sure that some of these bands did is they just they just detuned. So like they just might play in standard tuning, but just like go a half step or a whole step lower. Oh, just like every sound, string it, Okay. Yeah, just because it sounds kind of heavier. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I don't. Some bands did that. I, I I can't speak to the fact whether they did or not, but so that they can that still was, do the was, same chord shapes and stuff. Yeah, it's 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 just standard tuning, but it just like records a little heavier if you're like down tuned. Mm-hmm. I think Pantera did that a lot. You know. But I think you know, like the one thing I would just appreciate. I think they have they they have cool song structures. You know what I mean? They mm-hmm. they don't just settle to kind of. I mean, they they have to lock into like a big groove at certain times, but they, they always kind of change it up. I don't feel like they ever just settle just for like a straight song structure. Right. It is, and that is what makes me think and say Prague when I think about this album. Like in the same way that. Um, listener go back to listen to our second episode featuring bianca Riker, where she brought opeth's orchid to our show uh and yeah. a lot of that has the same feeling of like we're gonna break and go into a different flavor for a moment we're gonna have yeah. this as all part of one song all part of one journey but have it be distinct from the rest of the song and you know i mean i don't know for a fact but i would bet you know a thousand dollars that all the opeth guys absolutely were floored by this record when it came out. You know what I mean? Like yeah. any of those bands, the extreme metal bands of like the the more mid '90s to late '90s. I mean, I'm sure all of those bands were highly influenced by this when it came out because it was more ambitious than a lot of things that had come out. You know, and even more ambitious than stuff Metallica had done before. All right, and that is how you end a metal song. Yeah. Um. Let's see. In uh, Disposable Heroes, uh, there are a good few bits, but in the interest of time, I want to take us near the end because, um, this is a great song. This is one of my faves. This is one of my favorite Metallica songs. Uh, I wish we had time to play all the way through then, but I, I do want to jump to right to, uh, about seven minutes and 30 seconds because it's got this fun, like fake out ending. If you remember where it like does the whole cadence and classical, like come out and take a bow type moment. And then it just keeps shredding for a moment. Yeah. Yeah. Back to the front. I love that. Back to the front. Yeah. Back to the front. But yeah, I love that slam dance kind of gallop. It's such a mm-hmm. great sound. That offbeat snare. Yeah, totally. Thank you. Good night. Yeah.
Yeah, that I just song. love that's, that's that so a great, much. Yeah, that's a great it's, little. It's song. so it's such a cheeky way to end that song. But man, I you know they they definitely have a lot of subtlety and stuff. But it's also I love to just to hear them just do that like fast gallop thing that they yeah. do like on unlike that. Uh, obviously, we heard we heard a, a battery, you know, Damage Incorporated uh, mm-hmm. later on in the album. Um, yeah, no, they're they're they they were great at that for sure. Um, Orion is the one that uh, is is completely instrumental. I think it's the only instrumental on the album, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it like this is another. I mean, you know, this wasn't something that was really done to put like you know an eight minute instrumental. Yeah, it's that's, it's that's very, partially you know largely bass driven too. You know, mm-hmm. it's I mean, it's very. Uh, I I wrote down Pink Floyd on my notes, especially the section that uh, we're gonna we're gonna play here. Um, I really liked around. I mean, I ho- I like the whole song, but uh, when it starts to get very like hard rock ish, where it starts to back off from the, um, like you know that galloping metal tone into a more rhythmic drums, uh, is where it started really like click with the song. And then of course, I mean, you and I both playing bass, gotta love when it gets to that solo at at about four minutes. Uh, so let's pick up at, at about three minutes. Like it's distinctly metal shredding, but just it's it's fun how much changing that drum pattern underneath can change the whole tone of the song. See there, he gets kind of almost like Hendrixy there, bluesy kind yeah, of. Yeah, you know? yeah. He's sticking to pentatonics. He's not going super chromatic. Yeah. Yeah, I felt, I mean, he can be a shredder, but I always felt he had a really nice sense of taste and, and, mm-hmm. and melody. There's, yeah, there's like, of course, I played in bands and you've played in bands with shredders, and it's really hard to get sometimes for them to focus, especially the more talented they are. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Here's just, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, just to talk about Cliff, I think, you know, was obviously really beloved and this is I think one of his his great bass lines did he have more like this was was um, this like indicative of his style or was this a standout for um, his he has, he has a really cool kind of so- a solo called Anastasia Pulling Teeth where he does like a lot of stuff with like a sustain pedal and a, in a, huh. and a distortion pedal um, I think I think the intro to um, For Whom the Bell Tolls is, is like a classic line but he just you know he was just unique and one thing we talked about i think before we started but like on on the yeah this is pretty boom, boom, mm, it's so good it's so smooth one of our listeners uh simon m asked um whether or not we had examples of music that really made us want to like play it as soon as we heard it and this was that again yeah i like, learned how to play this when i was a kid and i was like i was super proud of myself like because <laughs> the other songs were just too uh, at least a lot of them were too physically challenging, just demanding. For me, for yeah. Me. yeah, just I just couldn't do it. And this was like one that had sort of a thing you could kind of like figure out how to pick it out. You know what I mean? Very because mm-hmm. it was very distinctive and uh, mixed really high. But and it's um, it's like in three time. It's got like a waltzy thing. Da, 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 da. That's yeah. just easier to like wrap your mind around in terms of the groove. Yeah, and the other thing we should mention about Cliff is like this whole album, even the craziest stuff like Damage or Battery. It's like 
he plays with his fingers like old school style. He's not playing with a pick, which I just don't. That scares me. Sometimes I just don't understand, fast. like how you could like just to get that like strict like timing with like fingers, just unbelievable to me. You know who I forget the guy's name, but the basis for System of a Down is also known for that for his ability to like precision play just with his fingers and and metal, which. You know, I grew up playing bass with a pick, so it's kind of like hardwired to that. And, you know, given the right occasion, I'll play with my fingers, but not this kind of music. This is just like very, very demanding. You got to imagine that he was always yeah. rocking it. Yeah. And Cliff was just cool, man, because he, he played, he was kind of anachronistic. You know, he, he wore like bell bottoms and like jeans. He kind of looked like an old hip. Yeah. And like he had a mustache and like he played a, he played an old, like a Rickenbacker bass. Oh, mostly, man. Like, like the a Rickenbacker one. for metal? Yeah, well, I mean, Lemmy from Motorhead played one. Was probably why he got oh, did it. He? But, like, but you know, that, those were not the kind of guitars people were playing in like the '80s. You know what I mean? It right. was definitely. He looked like he came out, got kicked out of like fucking Fog Hat or something. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> which is awesome. That's a lot of fun. But yeah, as we mentioned, he passed from here, um, and and passed the torch to a new, to a new bassist. Uh, we've got a fun question to answer later on in the show about sort of the future of the band from there, but. Um, yeah, that, that was the last... I mean, the whole album, my mind, just because I listened to so little metal, especially growing up, my mind tends to like let all this sound meld into one. And, you know, these songs have distinct riffs. And if you played a riff for me, I might be able to identify which track it's off of. But like, while I was listening and t- when I was going through like the notes for the notes stage of listening, um, that, that was that sort of tapped me out was was those uh, was those songs like what? Yeah, really I mean, this made me change my tune about Metallica, so to speak. I mean, to me, like the album's pretty flawless, you know, from a metal perspective. I don't think there's a bad song on it to me. Like Leper Messiah is really great. Damage Inc. is, you know, super breakneck. We should probably just play a bit of a damage because it's like just so... I like this atmospheric thing too. This is very Pink Floyd. Is this the one that starts in with like swells? Mm-hmm. You know what I heard is that this is actually uh, Cliff, the bassist, just playing with pedals and layering. Oh, yeah, yeah, I bet. Is that true? I think so, yeah, because Anastasia pulling teeth is like a lot like that sound. Like harder, but. It's just interesting to me that a metal, you know, my perception of metal is pretty straightforward. You know, thrash it, wave your head, yell. But this adds a lot of nuance to my understanding of metal, even on top of like what we had already talked about with Opeth. Um, this like knowing that it was being done this early really recontextualizes, recontextualizes a lot of this genre for me. Yeah, I mean, I think some of this is definitely a precursor to like what Opeth does, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, just kind of opened up. Yeah, this is actually really pretty. Does it make you want to mosh? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) 
blood Man. will follow blood, he says. Yeah. I mean, I imagine the pit at this, like, 86 concert was just Holy absolutely shit. Like, violent. Have I you saw ever seen Slayer. I saw Slayer. I, I saw Metallica at a, an arena, you know what ah. I mean? So I saw Slayer at the main room, and that was, like, right after 9-11, and, like, it was just Ooh. really ugly vibes, and... Man, that pit was violent, man. Yeah, it stayed the way the fuck back. Cause like in, in the main room, people just like <laughs> you. It was just like it's not even a pit, dude. It's not. It was like people throwing punches, like just like a punching fist fight. people in. The, yes, basically like sanctioned like fist fight. <laughs> First <laughs> Avenue would never let this happen like in today at all. But you know, it was it was nuts. Cause they always had a lot of like hardcore punk dudes and then metal dudes that didn't really like each other. But yeah, no, this is this is raw, man. It is. So, in, in all, you, you come away with a different uh, understanding of Metallica? A different understanding of metal, I think. You know, like I said, I in what seems to have been formative years for most people who are into metal now, um, you know, 6th, 7th grade, I wasn't listening to it. I was listening to far lighter stuff, and then by the time I got around to listening to heavier stuff, there were newer acts like um, Mastodon and uh, Every Time I Die that were like, you know, Mastodon is pretty classically metal in a lot of ways. Yeah. Oh, but I was talk about if there's a band that's really indebted to Metallica, I think yeah. Mastodon, and, and which are I great, had, but I had never realized prior to listening to this how much they got from it. But like, that is all to say, the, 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 the type of metal I had associated with, with the genre is, you know, more of that metal core. Like, I'm starting to realize, I guess this is giving me a good vocabulary four metal between thrash and uh like slash and um and metal core and all the different subgenres and and like signifiers of them this is giving me a good basis upon which to really understand like this seems to be the album that got a lot of people into metal as a genre yeah right is that is it fair to say i mean i think i was you know yeah like i probably ended up hearing this you know about six fifth sixth grade something like that yeah. you know i mean yeah it really it was a big album for me for sure for sure it was a big album for me you know because yeah, so i just I, I mean I, there was always metal around because it was it was big right but this right. just felt like this felt different it was sort of like you know i hadn't really heard a lot of prog rock either so some of this stuff was new to me i wasn't really connecting the dots back to oh, like really yes or whatever you know what i mean mm-hmm. or like pink floyd who i kind of knew you know just from radio but so yeah, you know, it was it was it was a big album for me for sure, and I think it's still. I mean, I was happy that it it held up for me. I think it's still. I mean, it, it's metals. There's a certain amount of like cheesiness to it, but mm-hmm. I don't mind that. You know what I mean? It's kind of like it's like watching a comic book movie. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. it's, it's just it's it's you know it it's no just one. fantasy stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. I I sort of had those moments listening to this, uh, you know, the final few times before recording, where it was like. I almost felt a little bit embarrassed that I was that found myself like humming it when it wasn't hearing it. You know, uh, I'm like, who who hums metal riffs? Nah, right? Don't be a bit. Exactly, but it's like just let it go, let it go, Indiana, let it go. You, it, it doesn't it doesn't matter. Just just yeah. like enjoy the thing. You know that Jason, you can get down with these riffs. You've been taking Final Fantasy plot lines seriously your entire life. <laughs> don't be embarrassed to like Metallica. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that is a devastating takedown of both me and and metal. <laughs> oh boy! Uh, should we do that, questions? Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think we should uh, sco- scooch right out of there because now I'm embarrassed. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm just. Right. It, I mean, like you know, sometimes it's good. You know, like I, not everything needs to be like you know Lucy Dacus. You know what I mean? Like sometimes it's good to yeah have escapism or, or just kind of like you know st- I don't even call it escapism because it's worthwhile music. But you know what I mean? Like it doesn't have to relate to your life. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. 
All right. Uh, well, we're actually going to touch a little bit, probably more on that in our listener uh, questions segment. Um, as you're listening to this, you'll you're obviously you didn't pay to get to this uh, episode. You're a very frugal listener. But um, if you do support MinMax at Patreon, that's patreon.com slash MinMax with two N's. Uh, every couple of weeks, we'll put up a post calling for uh, song suggestions and questions that you can ask our host and guest. Uh, in this case, it's me and Matt. Usually it's Matt and our far more talented host, or excuse me, far more talented guests. Um, and they will uh, take, take whatever you ask. Uh, if your question does not make it on the air that week, uh, fear not, because we do go back into the backlog occasionally if it seems particularly appropriate to the new guest. Um, so I'll let Matt, uh, I guess we'll both, I, this is weird. I think I mentioned yeah, we'll this both in, the, in the intro yeah. as well, but like, I've, I've felt like I was recording my intro for myself. Like, Hey Jason, <laughs> you kind of were. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, so our first question comes from Doreen Clyer. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that name correctly. Uh, says master of puppets is of course, one of Metallica's best known albums. Uh, what do you think gathered so much attention about that album at, excuse me, master of puppets at the time? Was it just their... <laughs> excuse me, previous tour work amounting to a natural tipping point. Um, was it something about the music in, in itself or was it like you used the word milieu before Matt? Yeah, I did use a milieu. That's very good. <laughs> it's part of the mise-en-scene of this podcast. Um, don't, don't push it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's, that's stretching. Um, what are the French words? Ennui. Um, no, I mean, I think it's combination, you know, I, I think that's like, Probably any time a band really gets huge, it's sort of because they put out the right album at the right time on the back of kind of doing a ton of work and building an audience and releasing good music. And then there's just sort of like an appetite for that band. And then they, they happen to just, you know, feed that audience an album that's just more realized. You know what I mean? Mm. You know, it would almost go back to like, I'm a huge fan of Pink, earlier Pink Floyd. Like, I love earlier Pink Floyd. But Dark Side was just that album. I think that it sort of, they built their career and then they just released that album that really connected with people and it was maybe just a more polished expression of everything they'd done up to that point. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, this was that album for Metallica. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm, I'm trying to think of examples of that for artists that I already did know. And, you know, it's hard to name specifically one because that's sort of what you expect from an artist going in, right? Is that their later work is going to be more full sound and then maybe their most recent work is going to be sort of the sellout. If you had to ar- <laughs> track the arc, like you were mentioning of, of most real, the, the, the Aerosmith effect, right? Like later on, uh, maybe they sort of lost a little bit of what made them really, really click with people. Yeah. Uh, and, and it seems like 30, this whole album was what, 34 years old now, 34 years ago that this yeah. album was just part of a, like, you know, uh, Gen Y is really getting started. Um, or what, what was the generation that was really getting into like, there would have been teens when this started that that's you. What are you generate? I'm, I'm like late. I'm way at the end of generation X basically, I think. Okay. So yeah. the, just like but, the right people. Well, there's Xennials the- too. There's a thing of Xennials, but I don't know. <sighs> Anyway. That's a fine. I hate actually. I hate talking about generations anyway. Yeah, but uh not- yeah, no, I mean I think I think either bands go one way. I think it's either like the band does their first album and then everything pales. But I think for a band that's gonna be around for a long time, it's probably usually like that third or fourth album mm-hmm. where they kind of like hit it, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh Jeff Enright asks, How do you think Metallica would have progressed musically if Cliff Burton never died? Uh Metallica had a huge impact on me in high school. Uh his first album was Ride the Lightning, but Master of Puppets was the second. Um 
uh, the earlier albums were the best albums they made, in Jeff's opinion. Uh, but feels like uh, Cliff's influence uh, can really be felt in those earlier albums with strong bass lines and riffs. And yeah. particularly, we just listened to, um, to excuse me, we listened to Orion and then later on to Live is to Die. Uh, but I guess the question is, Matt, this is specifically for you because I have no frame of reference. Yeah. Um, but how, how would the band, like, would it sa- sound similar? Would it sound different? without or excuse me with a cliff instead of without yeah i mean number one i think that and justice for all would have gone from being like a really good album to like potentially like a masterpiece because it was in in ways they were trying to be even more ambitious than this album Mm -hmm. but i think that it was kind of hamstrung a by their kind of petulant or uh self-defeating mixed choices also the fact i don't mean newstead's a good bass player for sure but he's more conventional than cliff was and i don't think he had probably either maybe the free reign to do it or the ability to write as melodically as Cliff did. Um, mm-hmm. Cliff definitely was unique, I think, in, in the metal genre for having that sense of melody. So I think that, I think Injustice would, could have been, oh my God, I think with Cliff, that could have been an amazing, amazing record. And who's to know? I mean, because the next album's kind of like the quote unquote sellout record. And I don't know if they would have had that same impulse. Did they feel that maybe like that chapter was closed because that was sort of a chapter like, like, I don't know. And, like and Justice they, for All they, definitely felt like the, the sort of like them trying to do like one more Cliff album without Cliff. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then the Black Album is sort of like them trying to be a more mainstream kind of conventional hard rock band. Um, so so I don't know. Do they, they, do, they, do they feel the need to do that or do they more stick to their guns? I don't know what would have gone into those decisions. I don't, I don't think it's any question that, you know, they lose something musically and maybe just, I don't know, I don't want to say spiritually, but sort of a certain vibe of the band is gone. You know what I mean? Like that, that Mm -hmm. core group of people that you can't necessarily replace. You know what I mean? Right. Um, even though they, early days they had Dave Mustaine from Megadeth that they, you know, kicked out of the band. But, um, you know, yeah, I don't know. It would have, it would have certainly been interesting because I think, I think he was a really talented guy and he had a lot of cool influences and, and it's a real shame. I think he's one of the sadder rock deaths to me just because he was so young. It was such a tragic freak accident. And that, you know, he was just sort of, he just sort of achieved, you know, something that I think that those guys have been working their whole lives for. And, you know, it's, it's so that was, I was really sad. Yeah. You got to imagine the like emotional toll that takes on the group too. Right. Like, like you said, you can't really account for their actions uh, with their new bassist in a whole lot of ways because it was very much, you weren't in the room. Right. Yeah. yeah. And maybe it was some bizarre kind of like tribute to cliff or something. I don't know in their, in their own minds. I don't know what that was. Yeah. Uh, well, Hunter S. Sachs asks uh any notable covers the the crew can think of that they like um i love master of puppets uh but his comment has nothing to do with it <laughs> uh, uh sucker for a good cover hunter is uh jeff buckley covering hallelujah johnny cash covering hurt uh and who can forget dynamite hacks questionable boys in the hood oof uh, <laughs> I, I didn't i had forgotten that and now i remember it and now Thanks, i'm hunter. mad uh, <laughs> is, it, is, it, is it hunter s sex hunter s sex I okay, I was like, wow, Hunter S. Sex. I was like, wow. Freudian this is, this is, this is, uh... um, And this is a question that we've gotten in the past. I really like bringing it up occasionally uh, because, you know, diversity of guests, we can get different opinions. Um, but Matt, uh, what do you think of uh, when you think of good covers? Anything that like sticks uh, out or just stands out as a really good one? Yeah, a couple. Um, shout out to Husker Du, the classic Minneapolis punk band who did an amazing cover of Eight Miles High by The Birds. Um, which was kind of a interesting song to do at that time in punk because it was sort of a hippie song and they, you know, were in the hardcore scene. They also did an amazing cover of a really great cover of uh, love is all around the theme from the Mary Tyler Moore show. 
um, which what? I really liked. Yeah, no, it's it's good. You look it up on YouTube. It's good. And then uh, a couple other ones I thought of were, oh, a Devo doing Satisfaction by the Stones and just huh. turning it in, into this like amazingly like mechanical, weird, like they completely deconstruct the song and kind of rebuild it like as this kind of mutant, like robotic groove. It's really amazing. Um, and then one that's one that's such a good cover. Some some covers are like Aretha Franklin respect. It's like an Otis Redding cover, but it, it's uh-huh. like her. It, you know, some songs are like that. Where uh, I was gonna just bring up uh, Hendrix all along the Watchtower. Oh um, yeah, which is a Dylan cover, but I mean Dylan's version is relatively unknown compared to Hendrix. Kind of just took that song from him, you know, <laughs> in mm-hmm. respect. So I mean that's. Like maybe that's the true the sign of a great cover, almost like Jeff Buckley, where it's like people don't even know it's a cover anymore. Yeah. I does has Dylan ever said how he feel how he ever felt about that? I think he liked it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I don't think Dylan's I, real I can't Dylan's imagine. really not particular about He's not litigious in that way. He just doesn't I don't think he cares how his stuff is like taken or how people interpret it. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. He's just like he did it and it, that was the time he did it and he's really pretty hands off. He got his shot at it. Yeah, huh. that's a very big thing to to do as as an artist, especially when you got like you could have a really big head if you were Bob Dylan. You would earn it. Um, Dylan's Dylan's secret power, I think, is that he doesn't care about a lot of things. That's why he's lasted <laughs> so long. God, I wish I had that superpower. <laughs> I care about everything at all. I know. Times. Yeah, yeah. He like I think he genuinely doesn't care what people think about him, which is something people say, but very few people actually. Yeah, mean. I don't think people. Most people mean that. Um, you've spoken, Matt, before about how you listen to music. Uh, Tim Laro has an interesting uh, poll on that question, which is how important is speaker quality to the overall listening experience? I have found that when I'm working at home, I listen to a lot of music over my smartphone speakers, oh, man. Uh, which I got to say, you buy just a cheap Bluetooth speaker. Do you, treat yourself better than that. Um, while I can't enjoy the nuanced layers of music, I would still rate this as an enjoyable experience. I mean, you know, hey, it. I'm not going to say, you know, I, some of the greatest musical experiences I had were like a freaking like Radio Shack, realistic knockoff sports Walkman, like the yellow kind, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. cranking. I like, got those as a hand-me-down. Like, I, yeah, like I'm painting my mom's garage, listening to like Nas Ilmatic on that piece of shit, you know? So I can't, <laughs> however, I have, you know, <laughs> invested a decent amount in like stereo equipment and a turntable and like I have an outboard digital audio converter and you know so i'm pretty into it and i mean to me it's cool like to hear music at its highest uh kind of form or whatever or fidelity you know because mm-hmm. I, I hear you hear details like i hear details and stuff when i listen at home that i, I never hear like on, on earbuds or like in the car when i i mean i listen to like spotify in the car radio sure or i mean i'm not like saying that that's not valid it's totally valid or listening on a speaker on your phone is valid but i do personally find it cool to like listen to really like you know something like dark side of the moon that's like super slaved over on like i have a pretty nice stereo and i've I've spent some money on it over the years kind of piece by piece finding like good mm-hmm. deals and things here and there and so i i mean to me it's 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 something that enhances my enjoyment of music but i don't ever like to say that you know one way is necessarily uh better than the other yeah i see when that question comes to me i've never been super particular myself um i own just the most basic like you know i have a bluetooth speaker for when i'm in the shower and i'd like to listen to music i i listen to music in the car just through the bluetooth connection um and otherwise i've got headphones uh just for around the house but nothing super expensive um but when i when i'm presented with the question i'm like i then have to weigh in my head do i want 
to risk hearing that there are people playing this music, you know, fingers on the fretboard and, you know, potentially if I've got high enough quality and if it was recorded like this, potentially like breathing and moving of bodies on the record and maybe have myself pulled out of that. That's like the super, super oh, granular wow. level of it. But I've, <laughs> That's really like neurotic, Jason. It, it, like, I, like I said, I wish I cared about less stuff in my life, but I cared about all things oh. equally at all times. Um, but um. It is, like, it's, it's not a realistic thing to worry about, but it's like I have listened to, you know, you listen to older records or, uh, you know, vinyls uh, at, at high enough quality and like remasters and stuff. And you can hear the people in yep. the room yep. doing the yep. things. And it's, it's a wonderful experience for like. Uh, getting a picture of how music is recorded and how music is made, but it's probably not the best for experiencing the music as written, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I guess I, that doesn't particularly bother me, but I mean, <laughs> I understand what you're saying. I, I, sure. Uh, the, the only other thing I would say is too, is that, uh, that with technology, I would say that it does not cost near what you think it does anymore. Mm. It's an absolute golden age of like reasonably priced audiophile stuff. And frankly, like, man, like you're, 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 150-ish range headphones now are incredible. They'll like, go you know, like You know, just like Audio-Technica, like with those like MX-50 or what? I mean, like, Jesus Christ. Like, you know, those would have been like probably $2,000 like in the 80s. You know what I mean? For how good mm -hmm. they sound. So like, I, I mean, at least I'd say like investing in a decent set of cans, you know, for like your work computer and stuff is like, I think well worth it. You know, yeah. and it doesn't cost that much. It really doesn't. I mean, I mean, and even speakers now, you can buy you know, two hundred, three hundred dollar price point speakers that are absolutely fantastic. You know, I only I got mine used for like a hundred and like eighty bucks, and like they're normally like four hundred, but they're amazing. Damn. Well, uh, if any audio equipment producers want to uh, get in touch with us about some um, uh, sponsored content, um, I uh, my definitely is open. Um, uh, let's see. Let's see. Uh, I had a question, which I'm going to selfishly scooch in here because I've always thought it. Do you think, Matt, uh, that you listen to music more often to change your mood or to match how you're feeling? It's it's an open open question. Um, boy, I I tend. <laughs> I, I sometimes I have to avoid like music that I like. Um, that's like depressing. Right now, especially I, I so I, I have sort of been tailoring, I think, you know, my listening habits to different stuff, especially since I think COVID and everything. Right. Um, right. And just the state of the world. How low can you really like go these days? Yeah. So I just like, it's hard for me to like, like somebody like Nick Drake is a, is a classic. I mean, he's one of my favorite artists and uh, songwriters, but man, it's tough. If I put on five leaves left by him, I'll get in a real zone, especially in the fall. So yeah, yeah I have to kind of like, I can be very affected by music that I'm listening to sometimes. So I got to be careful. Yeah. I, I guess when I listen, when I'm in a mood and I listen to music, I think, am I, am I listening to this to change it or to match it? Like Nick cave is a really good example. I yeah, love there's his another work. one. Yeah. I love what I've listened to of his. I'm not like an aficionado, but it is super hard to will myself into listening to an album that a man wrote in following his son's, you know, tragic and violent death. Oh, yeah. You know? The skeleton, yeah. I love The Skeleton Tree, but I don't know how many times I'm going to ever listen to that. I mean, I, yeah. I saw the movie at a, in a theater for a film festival up here, um, uh, Once More with Feeling, and it was about the making of that and him dealing with his son's death. And, like, that was, that, it was dead. It was like a funeral walking out of that movie theater. Yeah. And, like, yeah. no one was talking. You know what I mean? You, you got to be thing careful. I, I want to shout out mid-70s, early mid-70s reggae records. You can't feel bad listening to them really yeah always That's a like i always hack. go back to like the congos or like toots and the maytals or like you know 
Augustus Pablo, even, you know, some of the early Marley records are really good. Yeah, I just, you know, reggae, I think it's hard to be in a bad mood listening to reggae, especially like the classic era <laughs> stuff. That's so, that's such a basic, simple thing that I never think to do. You know, it's like, it's just good, good feeling music. It means a lot, you know, culturally, but it is also just like very upbeat and very in line yeah. with a, and like reset your mood type. It'll, it gets dicier as you get more towards the 80s. In like 73, 74, so like there's no bad reggae records. At least I've wow. not heard them. Like all they're right. all good. I'm going to jot that one down. Yeah. Um, like, uh, yeah, Culture, Two Sevens Clash, stuff like that is awesome. I am not sure actually, Matt, that I sent you this one. So I apologize if it's left fielder, but I feel like you should be able to answer it pretty quickly if you've got an answer. Um, Jason Wardgenar wants to know, because it's a metal, at least partially metal themed episode, uh, have you ever hurt yourself or somebody else by accident at a show? <laughs> Um, well, one time I was playing a show at this place called the Terminal Bar uh-huh. in, in Northeast, and it's a real fucking shithole. And uh, <laughs> you used to get paid like two, you know, like two pitchers of beer, and like, I don't know what else you got paid. But anyway, Ooh. so they didn't have a stage. So part of the stage was a pool table that they shoved up against the stage and put like a, a big piece of plywood on. To like enhance the size of the stage, and I was kind of like <laughs> I was kind of like rocking back and forth, and there was sort of like a little gap between there, and my foot like went down s- sideways into the gap, Ugh. and then I fell and kind of got stuck on my low, like kind of above my knee, on my lower thigh, and this is in the middle of a show, so yeah, my singer had to pull me out. And Jesus, and you died instantly. No, nah, I mean I didn't die, but it was just like that wasn't fun. Yeah. So that's one uh, time. But yeah, I mean, I've been in some pits, you know, definitely there was this place called the bomb shelter on Lake street. This is like illegal punk place. And there was like, yeah, I, I used to kind of stay out of that stuff, man. Cause dudes in the nineties, especially man, people used to get really animated and there wasn't, yeah. the security was way like first day of security now is so much more proactive than it was back then. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I was never a big like mosh guy. I mean, I've definitely been in some like punk shows and like house shows and stuff, but basement shows but you know I, I i was never a big like pit guy right um i never had that crazy an experience but you know i grew up going to christian concerts and and pop music concerts but uh more recently i think it was it was like near the end of last year it was one of the last concerts i actually got to go to before covid um COVID in cambria and mastodon and every time i die very coincidentally with this show um they were playing at the armory, uh, one of the newer venues here in Minneapolis. And they, uh, so I ended up like worming my way through the openers all the way to, to the uh, barrier. And as people were, um, moshing or excuse me, crowd surfing from the back of the pit to the front, like to be escorted by, uh, by security, they would, you know, you had no idea. You would hope that the security guy would say like, you got one coming and that you would be able to turn around and carry this person to the front. That didn't always work out, and I got like pretty badly knocked in the head a few times by some errant limbs and you know shoes and stuff. Never really considered like I I didn't I wasn't knocked out or anything, so I thought I was okay. I ended up going to my office afterward because it used to be downtown, and uh, I went up like I must have passed two or three people midnight in Minneapolis, and I went all the way up to the uh, office, went to the bathroom to like just splash some water on my face before heading home, and my face is just covered from my nose to to like my chest in blood. <laughs> Yikes. Somebody had just hit right, just the right capillary where I didn't feel it. You know, it's a hot and heavy Damn. pit. And I was just like gushing. Uh, so I, I must have looked like a real, real weirdo wow. walking around that late at night. But um, then I was like, wow, 
maybe maybe I'm cut out for this metal stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's hardcore, man. You should take a selfie. I didn't think to. I was just like, ah, I gotta wash my face now. Make sure nobody else sees me before I get home. Um, that's that's probably the the wildest. I've had some other. That's a good. That's ones, that's but. a good one. Um. All right. And Nobby Buchholz uh, asks, how often do you find that your favorite album from an artist isn't the consensus best? Unlike most people I know, my favorite Metallica album is Ride the Lightning instead of Master of Puppets. I recognize that Master is superior in a lot of ways, and Ride has some songs that aren't as well-loved as Master, but Ride was my first Metallica album, and that puts it over the top in my book. Any good examples of that, Matt? Yeah, I mean, I do, yeah, I, I do that all the time. I love doing yeah. it. Um, no, but, you know, even like, uh, you know, on the show, we did The Royal Scam by Steely Dan instead of sure. like Asia or like Katie Lied or something. Um, well, Big Presence by Led Zeppelin guy. They're like least love album, but... uh. I'm a big fan of that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I like. I'm trying to think. Like Fugazi, I really like the last album a lot. The argument. Uh-huh. I don't know. Yeah, I'm. I'm generally. I have. I mean, maybe more often than not, sometimes that it's not necessarily the consensus one, you know. But a lot of it too, you know, is just time and place too. Like, you know, I think that's very common. What what he's talking about with the the first one that you really fell in love with is sort mm-hmm. of the one that you can't really replace in a certain way. Yeah, I think that's sort of the question. Um, I think one of mine is going to be, I, I shared what ended up being a much more embarrassing anecdote about how I got into the band through a Panic at the Disco cover on this show, which I'll still, I'll still own. Um, but uh, the the first, the band record I really loved was um, Northern Lights, Southern Cross, and that one is well liked, I think. That's a uh, deep, that's a deep cut, though. Wow, that's, I, that is I, pretty good. I I love that album so much. I think it's got a lot of their best musicianship on display. Um, but it's not, you know, music from Big Pink. It's not their self-titled. It's not one of the ones that has all the hits on it. You know, it was sort of returned to form for them after some sw- some forays in other in other you know songwriting styles. Um, so that's the one I think of when I think of this question of uh, what what hooked your ear first and did that stay your favorite? And I think that might be my favorite, the band album. Um, yeah, it's got uh, what Acacian Driftwood. That's a Acadian big one Driftwood. On there. It's yeah, Driftwood. I, I, I believe it starts with uh, Forbidden Fruit, just like a Hobo whole lot Jungle. Of hits. Hobo Jungle. Oh That's man, that yeah. is the for Richard Manuel. That is the one that always breaks my heart to hear him singing that. And I mean, Oof. of course, the Whispering opener. Pines. Yeah, oh. man, what what a yeah. That's Richard that Manuel. Would... Rest in peace. There's a he was a yeah. He, he was a real one. There's a guy that his his some of his songs like his real mournful songs really put me like like whispering they, they put pines you in a dark or place. like sleeping off like the third album. I mean he's a yeah he had a real mournful quality to him. Yeah. All right, uh, and that's the end of our listener questions. Thank you so much, everybody. If we didn't get to yours, uh, fret not again. We might dip back in, and uh, you might hear it on a future episode. Um, our listener track this week comes from Tom Blackburn. Uh, suggests an Ethiopian band that apparently lived in Japan for about a decade before living me, before coming to the U.S. Uh, they are called Berhana, and this song is called Golden. We'll play it as we outro, but Matt, I'll let you take this, us out with this. Yeah, no, that 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 backstory solves a lot of questions I had about this song. Yeah, because I thought it was a really cool, like, kind of mix of like modern R and B with like like almost eighties kind of synth pop. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And, yeah, it sounds like it a had, city But pop it also jam. had this very kind of like a little different vibe to it that I think African stuff tends to have rhythmically. Like they don't put 
rhythmic emphasis on the same kind of you know stuff that we do yeah and, yeah and this was a cool track it had a, it had really interesting kind of textures and, and and melodic and rhythmic things going on so that was a cool mm-hmm. one um so thanks for that pick it was cool um and always thanks you know thanks for listening we really appreciate the support um thanks again for leaving um saying nice things about us in reviews we appreciate that and obviously you know support support the min max patreon that's what makes it all possible and you know ben and those guys are doing so much cool stuff over there and uh you know it's they're a great bunch of folks and uh, we hope you support them i'm at matt helgeson on twitter i am at uh, nintendoofus i tweet a lot about music and other stuff so check it out yeah so thanks for listening and we'll be back in two weeks jason it was fun i'm glad we could finally do this and have uh get your pick in here and it was it was a great one so it was a fun show thanks everybody remember love in the summer take you to the cinema yellow halo above ya it's something bigger than us it's bigger than love